Welcome to Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times, produced by the Department of Journalism and Digital Communication at the University of South Florida. Here is your host, Professor Elliot Weiser. Hello, everyone, and welcome. What began as a homeless man attacking a woman in the popular Tampa neighborhood of Hyde Park has become a cautionary tale of how mental illness can affect a person and their family while inflicting pain on an innocent person. This story appeared on a police blotter, but through the hard work of Tampa Bay Times reporters Sue Carlton and Dan Sullivan, this is now something more. Sue joins us on the podcast. Welcome, Sue. Good to have you. Thanks. Good to be here. So what were the events of the day the victim was attacked by a homeless man in Hyde Park? Well, it was back in May, and uh, Hyde Park is a, an affluent, historic neighborhood in Tampa, very pretty with, you know, oak trees and a, and a sort of thriving central part of it that's full of restaurants and fancy shops and that kind of thing. And a young woman, 30 years old, who, whose name was Taylor, was out for a walk. It's a very, very walkable neighborhood and uh, didn't think much of it when she passed by a homeless man as she was uh, going along because uh, there's plenty of homeless in Tampa, particularly around the downtown area, and Hyde Park is fairly close to that, until he started to chase her. And um, for, for no reason that she knew, and so he, she ran, he chased, uh, pulled her to the ground, um, didn't try to take her purse, didn't try to sexually assault her, just started hitting her and in the face and, and laughed the whole time. Mm. Um, and she was fairly seriously injured until um, she had a broken nose, she had a concussion. It was a, a pretty violent attack until someone came and intervened and helped her. So this is not the first time we've heard about a homeless person attacking someone, uh, but this, this seems different. The homeless person in this case, Michael Samdas, appears to have a different backstory. What did it take to find that deeper story? Well, I don't, I don't know. I want to say one thing before. Let me start with the, what you said at the very beginning, which is, you know, we've heard of homeless people attacking people to, before. Just for the record, when you talk to police, they'll tell you um, homeless people really tend to be victims of crimes way more or witnesses, but mm. victims of crimes way more often than than they. Um, I mean, within their groups, there's often, you know, conflicts and fights and that sort of thing. But they tend to be victims way more often. So it wasn't. It was atypical in that way. It was atypical, and it clearly wasn't motivated by robbery or, you know, anger. You know, she said something to me. You know, she called me name, and I'm going to beat her up now. Um, that sort of thing. Um, but in in some ways, the erratic behavior was pretty typical because um, nationally they say at least, at least, and I think this is really conservative, uh, 25% of homeless people that you see on the street at least are seriously mentally ill, seriously mentally ill. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's sort of the jumping off point. I think you're asking, like, why, why, did, we, why did we look at this? Yeah, how did it go from the police blotter to what it became? And you're right. This is the kind of thing where, it's, you know, you get kind of you get a little callous in newspapers like, well, nobody died. And, you know, eh, you know, it's kind of on the border. We have a lot of big city crime in Tampa. Tampa is a big city now. Um, there were there were a couple of things. Um, one for me was I, I see these things come. We, we have a system where you or if you're working the newspaper you see lots of things that come over um, that are happening and that we don't write about and all that kind of thing but it, the, the lack of motivation for the crime seems so strange to me um, and I'm thinking you know what, what's going on here clearly we've got a mental health issue you know who is this guy and then the other thing was his mugshot if you see this guy's mug I've looked at 
as you have, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of mugshots in my life. This one is just... Um, there is clearly so much mental illness in this mugshot. He has these very penetrating eyes. These, these. I, it's really hard to describe uh, this. I found it frightening. I think frightening is is a good word for it. Um, just sort of the lack of of clarity, but the sharpness of his eyes, and then this matted this hair that had grown uh, down his back that was just matted and and thick and matted. The look on his face. To me, um, I think something happens with people uh, when it comes to homeless people. I think there are different camps of people. There are people who um, want to pretend that they're another species and not, not, you know, human beings who've gone off on a completely different path than us. And then there are people who are who wonder what in the world, how did this person get there? And I guess that was part of it, too. Like, how did this guy get here? And I didn't know the backstory, the interesting backstory that that came up after this. But it also made me think there's probably, you know, every homeless person was somebody's kid, was somebody's baby. Every homeless person went to school. Um, There's probably a lot more as surprising and interesting as this guy's backstory was. There's probably tons of those. Probably you could look at every homeless person and find a story going backwards to when they were a baby and how their life went the way it went. Yeah, absolutely. So the name that he gave to police, did that catch your attention oh, yeah, at all? Oh, yeah, that too. Yes, good point. Um, he, the name he gave to police, and they didn't uh, find out his real name. It was some time passed before that happened. His, he, the name he gave to police was Ezja Bezelbub Nodopa which was certainly an eyebrow raiser too. Bezelbub <laughs> being the a name for the devil. Nodopa sounds, you know, Sounds like it's got some connotations to it, too. I'm not sure about Ezja. I know I looked it up. I couldn't find anything that was connected to that. But certainly Beelzebub was like, okay, the devil. And interestingly, when I interviewed um, the woman who is the victim in this attack, uh, whose name is Taylor, she, she, we used her first name because we don't use last names for victims of violent crimes. Um, she, what she actually said was this man was a demon. He was just a demon. She said, I've never seen a face like I saw on this man, this, this, his motivation for no reason that she could figure out. She said it, he was like the devil. So yes, he, he gave that name. He had some ID cards on him that had that name on them. Now the name Michael Samdas was, was that on his person or did you mm-hmm. have to discover that on your own? No, Michael Samdas was not on his person. It was, it was Googling. It was comparing mug shots. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how we finally landed on when we found him. It was just a lot of sort of research between reporters and, and looking at stuff. But it turned out Michael Samdas was a fellow who lived in Canada. He had a um, very tight-knit family, five brothers and sisters. They were fairly affluent. Um, they were in the real estate business. And it turned out Michael Samdas, and if you looked at his pictures from then and, and that crazy mugshot, you could tell it was the same guy. You could tell he was in there somewhere, even though it looked like, you know, somebody had taken a, a normal, competent person and, you know, just done a horror show maker over on this person. Um, it turned out that he, it, it wasn't hard to find, let me just say, because his family had been looking for him for years, since 2017. They had, he was a guy who, they, uh, Paramount, uh, Paramount Plus had, has a series called um, Never Seen Again. And the family had gotten Paramount Plus to do it, to do. I mean, they had done everything. $25,000 reward, Facebook pages, searches of cities and um, shelters. And I mean, there's no more. Did they think he was dead? I don't, you know, since that many years passed, 
I, I know, having talked to a couple of the sisters extensively, they certainly hoped he was still alive, and they thought he was still alive. There was a psychic that told him he'd been murdered in a drug, uh, drug-related incident and chopped into pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to have somebody just vanish like that, and, and when this guy vanished, he didn't take his cell phone, he didn't take his laptop, he didn't take his car, he didn't touch his bank account. It was just so bizarre. I mean, they just didn't know. They were just in everything just shut down for them. So did Michael in Canada lead a a normal life and then at one point just like this turned or was it gradual? Did they notice over time what happened? That's an interesting uh, question. That's a really good question too. And I think it might be typical to a lot of um, mental health issues in which people do end up uh, being on the streets. He was, he was the kind of guy they said, who's uh, he, he, he was very neat uh, had had lots of girlfriends, uh, very sociable. He always liked to have his tie match his socks. He, um, the family was in the real estate business, and his sister actually built a really big real estate business. And his part of that business was he liked to renovate. He really enjoyed the renovating part of it. So he renovated and helped flip, home, flip homes. Successful, um, sociable. If you look on their Facebook page, he's you know he's at weddings, dancing with you know his sisters or with a girlfriend. He's at you know family events, playing with the little toddlers and all that kind of thing, looked extremely normal. So long about 2017, people noticed that his behavior started to change. And it was, um, he, he just got erratic. He stopped caring so much about his appearance. He stayed home a lot. He started sleeping a lot. Um, he had a violent incident with his father, which he'd never had before. Um, it just clearly something was wrong. His sister, one of his sisters said to me, she said he would walk around talking to himself. And the quote was like he was talking to the clouds. And so his sisters, who clearly you can if you speak to them for 10 minutes, you can tell, you know, love their brother very much, very close. You can tell by the family photos and everything. Um, they they wanted him evaluated under Canada's version of it, it's the Mental Health Act there, which would be sort of similar to our Baker Act here. Um, you know, if you're a danger to yourself or others, if you need to be evaluated, all that kind of thing for the safety of um, people around you and yourself. Four times they had him evaluated. Four times they managed to get him in to get evaluated. Four times they let him go and said he was fine. Mm. When this very frustrated family kept saying, He's not fine. We know who he was, and we're seeing who he is, and he's not fine. About what age would he uh, be? Michael's 40. Let's see. He's 44 now, so he would have been in his late 30s, which is late for schizophrenia. And I can tell you um, in court, because of HIPAA laws and all that kind of thing, sometimes you you can catch snippets in the court uh, about what they think his specific mental illness is. Um I don't know what it is, except that ultimately he was determined to be mentally completely incompetent, could not stand trial. So uh, Taylor, who is the victim, as you mentioned, said uh, that her attacker was demon-like. So how did the family reconcile that description with the Michael they knew? I think that was incredibly... The first, Their first reaction was being when, when there's a group that... Uh, there are groups out there that um, take on these vanished people... Um, cases and and do looking do the looking for you there i didn't know these groups existed but they do so the their first reaction was this incredible relief when it was a facial recognition um technology that matched a jail mugs shot out of tampa to the pictures that the family had mm. so that was kind of amazing so when the police came to their door and said we got a match they were incredibly happy then they heard what happened so i think that was 
really difficult for them. It's uh, to reconcile their brother who they loved, who was, you know, a dear person to them and, and all this with this person who had been accused of doing this really heinous and unexplainable thing. This is an amazing story, Sue. We're going to learn more about it right after this break. Never miss the news that matters. The Tampa Bay Times has the Bay Area's largest newsroom and is your source for reliable reporting. With 14 Pulitzer Prizes recognizing its commitment to the community through high-quality journalism, the Times provides the news you need from the source you can trust. Find local stories, investigative reports, things to do, updates on Florida politics, and more. In print on Wednesdays and Sundays and 24-7 at TampaBay.com. Pursue the truth. If you work in the media, communications, or marketing industry, this message is for you. Take your career to the next level by getting your master's degree from one of the top journalism programs in the Southeast. The journalism department at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, is offering a master's degree in digital journalism and design. And the best thing about it, you can do the entire program from home. This online curriculum can be completed in as little as one year. The program is professionally accredited and provides students with an informative and practical education taught by well-respected professionals and academics. The cost is reasonable. The experience is invaluable. For more information, please call 727-873-4881. That's 727-873-4881 or go to www.usf. Edu journalism. And now, back to Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times. We are speaking with Sue Carlton, who is an urban affairs reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. Sue, uh, let's talk more about uh, Michael Samdes and this, this amazing story. So uh, in your story, it mentions that the Canadian news outlets reported that Michael was found, but failed to report the violent nature of this. Uh, talk about that a little. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I, I Clearly, the the newspapers operate a little bit differently there and were very deferential to the family. And, you know, the family clearly didn't want everyone to know that this that their brother was accused of this this terrible thing. Although although I will say they were very open in talking about it and talking with with me in, in hopes that it might do some good. Um, but I think and that was a frustration for a lot of people involved in the case. There's another victim in the case who, who came to help Taylor, who's a lawyer in Tampa, who just felt very frustrated that it sounded like, you know, oh, this poor, sad guy has been found and, you know, he's a victim and all this. And, he, and as, as this lawyer said to me for the story, you know, this man could have beaten this woman to death. Let's talk about that lawyer for a second, because he, sure. he was a real hero, wasn't he? He was. Uh, and his his story is very interesting, too, and says a lot about sort of the homeless situation in Tampa. His name is Charles McKean, and he's a personal injury lawyer um, who works uh, in downtown Tampa. And um, that that evening when Taylor was attacked, he heard that he was coming home from dinner with his wife and his son who had just come home from college. And they were just walking home in this lovely neighborhood. And they hear this woman screaming. Well, uh, McKeon, who has a concealed carry permit, had a gun with him and ran to where she was and had an encounter with um, Sam Das, uh, got, actually got, got his gun out and, and a shot, got a shot off, didn't hit anybody. Um, but got knocked down and had a concussion himself. 
So a lot of people, when this story was sort of going around and being told, people are going, well, God, this guy's just walking home from dinner and he's carrying a gun with him, really? I mean, what's up there? Well, there's an interesting story to that. He works on Franklin Street in downtown Tampa, which is um, on the north end of downtown, um, just inundated with homeless. I mean, that's where that if you you know wanted to find homeless people to talk to, that is mm-hmm. where you would go. They sleep in doorways. They uh, hang out outside the Starbucks, you know, um, to get coffee. They panhandle that is very much a heavily homeless uh, area um, his office right next to the Tampa theater he was coming to work one morning at about 6 a.m 6 or 7 a.m and he a homeless guy uh, came after him this is in police reports came after him with a sharpened stick mm-hmm. and tried to attack him not for any reason didn't know if it was a robbery the guy sounded in according to the um, police report sounded very deluded but he he had a very long sharp stick that he was trying to attack him with and after that, I, I, uh, Mr. McKeon already had a concealed weapons permit, but he started carrying his carrying his uh, his gun with him more often. So let's talk about when the case goes to court against Michael Samdas. What happened? So really quickly, and I think you or I could have probably made this assessment, but really quickly, he was found incompetent to stand trial. I mean, he, you know, unless the guy, you know, is an Oscar winning actor, you know, there were things like um, they would call. You know, there's always a bunch of defendants there and they call their name, you know, Smith and the guy stands up and they do his thing. They said Sam Das and he would just sit there and he, he like he didn't recognize, you know, he didn't it didn't have anything to do with him. And then his lawyer would have to lean over and say, no, dopa. And he'd be like, oh, and he'd stand up. Mm. Um, so very, very quickly, he was evaluated by a forensic psychiatrist and found to be um incompetent to stand trial for the, the crimes he was accused of against Taylor. Then the assessment is, you know, what do you do? Well, what do we do with him? And uh, it was ultimately decided that he would go to the Florida State Hospital. I don't know if he went to Chattahoochee or the other the other branch of it, but he would go to Florida State Hospital. And what they generally do, you get treatment, you get a lot of medication. Six months later, they assess you. And if you're found to be competent, which happens very often um, because you're on meds and, you know, you're they're, they've got you leveled, um, then you come back for trial. Was his family in the court? His mother and two of his sisters uh, flew in for that hearing, and he looked out into the audience and did not show any recognition whatsoever. When he was asked, when his lawyers, he had a public defender, and the family really praised the public defender's office for treating him like a person uh, during this whole thing, he he said he didn't have any family. He didn't he didn't recognize who these people were at all. And, and what had, was their reaction? Oh, I think, I think you could d- describe this family fairly all the way from the time that they found out about it, while being happy that he was alive, just utterly heartbroken, and really hoping that he can get that he can be restored to to his actual self again in some way. So difficult, so difficult. So how how's Taylor doing? You know, she was kind of amazing, I thought. For somebody that had had something so random and terrible happen to her, um, she was a really interesting inter- interview. She... Um, She's she recovered from her mostly from her injuries. I mean, a broken nose, a concussion, um, you know, bruises and scrapes. And she's got a couple scars and all that kind of thing. And she I remember she said, she said, I was in a really good season of my life and I'm just not going to let this ruin it. And talking to her about what she wants to happen here was really interesting and I think reflects a lot of the ambivalence people have about homeless people, you know, in a, in a micro sense for her. But but she, when she watched the Paramount Plus 
um, piece about him and found out that he had these sisters that were that loved him and cared about him. And she said, I'm a sister. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I, it, it was hard for her when I said, what do you want to happen? She really had a hard time with it. And she said, I've just got to, I've got to be okay in my life no matter what happens. But I wanted to pay for it, but I understand there's mental health. I, I think she, she, um, she struggled a bit with trying to figure out what the right thing was, which is kind of amazing to me because mm-hmm. I've covered lots and lots of victims and very often, and you know, who can blame them? It's, I want this person to go away and pay for what they did to me. And that's all there is to this. Incredible. So how did people react to this story? Too? You know, that's, re- that's a really interesting question. I thought um, when you write about homeless people and I do a fair amount, um, I did I did a couple years ago I did a project where we recounted all the homeless people that died in Hillsborough County in a, a calendar year and like what their story was like how they got to where they got and people will either be, I feel like there's three camps of people there's the people who are ultra empathetic to the homeless there's people that just want them to go away and think they are a scourge and and you know want that you know, no feedings, no, none of that stop. And then there's people in between who kind of don't know what to do. Like, what do you do when someone's standing at the corner holding up a sign and says, I'm hungry. And you're thinking, you know, but is it, if I give money, is it for drugs? You know, what do I do? And I think that group of people puts a distance between themselves to, I don't know if it's some sort of natural thing that happens to us where we say, I want, I want to believe this could never happen to me. So I have to distance myself from what I'm seeing here. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, sorry, long way to answer that question. I was really surprised. I figured we'd be criticized for seeming like we were coddling this guy, um, seeming like we were we were maybe somehow being apologists for, you know, well, he's mentally ill, so, you know, what can you do? That, or, or something. But I got reaction from both sides. The people who were homeless advocates really liked, you know, us going backwards and finding out that this guy had a story and a family and all that. But then people like um, there's a politician in town who I won't name, who was very who was very, you know, put him on a bus, get him out of here, who called and said that was just incredibly interesting to find out, you know, how how somebody like that got to where they got. So I, I felt like by just telling the story very plainly, um, it, it maybe gave people a chance to kind of think about, you know, every single person they see out there has a story. Are you thinking about going to interview Michael uh, up in the hospital or what's the follow up on this? Well, the, um, I'm keeping in touch. I'm very much keeping in touch with uh, the family uh, who've been incredibly generous about, you know, talking, you know, despite that the papers up there, I don't think still have reported uh, Michael's story, what happened to him. Um I mean, I want to follow his story. He comes up for um, reevaluation in May. I don't think there's any. You, I, you, I don't think there's any talking to him now. He's, I think, in the process of, um, you know, medications and evaluations and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, sure, I'd love to talk to him, but I mean, I'd like to see what the effects are on everybody that was affected by this case. You know, what does it do to Mr. McKeon? What does it do to Taylor? You know, what happens to you know to Michael's family? Who, you know, who all they did was try to find their find their brother find their son um i i do want to follow up on the case and i want to see what the system does what does the system do do they do they, do they find him worthy of some sort of reevaluation? do they say nope go to jail that's it that's all you know you did a horrible thing regardless of where your brain was at the time um i i think following what the system's going to do with him is going to be re- very very interesting sue amazing story 
Thank you so much for joining us Thanks today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. A reminder that Season 1 of Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times is available right now. Also, we would appreciate you giving the podcast an excellent rating while telling your friends and family about us. On our next episode, we will be talking uh, with the Tampa Bay Times and taking a look at a fascinating investigation they did into the Kratom industry. Until then, I'm Elliot Weiser. Thank you for listening to Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times. The podcast is produced by the Department of Journalism and Digital Communication at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Executive producers are Elliot Weiser and Michael Van Sickler. Producers are Ashlyn Baker, Emerson Taylor, and Kendra Reese. Production assistants are Alexa McClure and Aidan Connell. And our director is Chris Campbell.